Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think in a way, it's once you sort of, I wanted to know more about why Christopher was different to me. I wanted to know why I didn't remember stuff. And I'd met my mother in my 30s. And when I spoke to her family, my mother died some years ago. And when I, when you speak to people, there there is an amnesia that you're aware of. And I think actually children who have difficult childhoods develop amnesia. But also I think that people sort of give them amnesia. It's almost like you can be infected with amnesia as a as a way of, because there's things that you don't want to remember and the things that genuinely you can't, you can't process as a child. Those things could not have happened. That person could not have done those things because they're there in the morning and everything's normal. Sometimes I think there is a reason memories burrow and hide, not wanting to be found. It's why I stopped therapy. I started when I turned 50, a sustained attempt to understand my inner life. But I tired of breaking down walls to the scared boy, only to brick him up again at the end of the hour. The powerful words of Alan Jenkins from his haunting new memoir, Plot 29, published by HarperCollins. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How does the past impinge upon the present? And is it possible to break free from painful childhood memories? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with two thought-provoking and engaging writers. One a novelist and filmmaker, the other a journalist and gardener. Writers of tremendous depth, courage and emotion. Alan Jenkins explores the impact of childhood trauma and abandonment on his life and relationships. And Chris Krause talks the lessons of history as teased out in her novel Torpor, published by Profile Books. But first, when I'm disturbed, even angry, gardening is a therapy. When I don't want to talk, I turn to Plot 29 or to a wilder piece of land by a northern sea. There among the seeds and trees, my breathing slows, my heart rate too my anxieties slip away. The direct words of Alan Jenkins from his unflinching new memoir, Plot 29, published by HarperCollins. Hello, my name is Alan Jenkins. I'm the editor of the Observer Food Monthly in London. Um, I'm a writer, I'm a gardener, and I'm a cook. I garden an allotment in London called Plot 29, and I've recently written a book about um, working on that and unearthing my past. Really well done on um, the memoir, Alan. It is um, an extraordinary spacious read. I have to say I learned lots about life and how to deal with adversity by um, reading your memoir. So hats off to you on that. Is it fair to describe um, the memoir as um, a reflection on uncertainty and how to deal with things that we can't control? I'm not sure we can control very much. I mean, I, I, I was brought up to sort of trust my own instincts to some extent. And truthfully, it's also, it wasn't the book I intended to write. I thought I, it was going to be a much more simple book. It was going to be a book about an old man who grows food and flowers because a kindly old man gave him food and flowers and taught him how to grow. And circumstances overtook that rather. And the book became a different book and I sort of, I trusted it and let it go. So 
yes, I realized there was uncertainty. I never knew what I was going to write the next day. In a year, I only made notes twice about what I would write the following day. And I don't normally do that. I'm a sort of professional journalist. So I normally master all of my information before I start writing. With this, I wanted to see where it took me. So it was a kind of an experiment, was it? I, I don't know if it is an experiment. It's just that um, I think it's just that it, it be, I realized it about four paragraphs in and I was writing about growing broad beans. And I think I said something about, I think I learned to love from seed. It was the, um, it was the helplessness of seed and how I tried to protect it like I couldn't protect my brother or my sister. And I was surprised I'd written that. I had no intention of writing that. And I was surprised I'd written that so early. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. There's obviously another book that wants to be heard. Mm -hmm. And my brother had died. And we'd had a sort of conflicted relationship, but we had had these 10 years together in a foster family in Devon. And I hadn't really dealt with the fact that he died. and I hadn't dealt with the guilt I'd had for being luckier than him. You quote Nietzsche at the end of um, the memoir, and it's a, it, it, it's a very uh, provocative quote. It's hope is the worst of evils, for it prolongs the torments. Yes, well, um, it's like yes, hope is the last thing released for Pandora's box. Yeah, I, I, I think the truth is, I, I think one always wants hope, but I think you know, it's that it's it can be cruel. There, there's sort of episodes where. Yeah, I longed for my mother. I, I always sort of believed that if I found my mother, if I found my father, if I found this, everything would would turn out okay. And I realised really that what I did was I found myself and everything turned okay from that. You were um, approaching 60 when you set out to write this journal, yeah. wasn't it? So you yes, must... I was older than my brother yeah. and my mother and my father when they died. And I think that that also shaded the book. I, I hadn't even thought about it. There was lots of things I don't think I'd particularly thought about. And I, and I realized suddenly that, yes, my brother had died before he was 60. My, my father, I, who I discovered in the course of writing this book, died in his early 50s. My mother died before she was 60. You, you come to a point where you sort of want to, I don't know, not tidy loose ends, because I don't think loose ends can be tidied, truthfully. It's a time where you you have enough space, or you think you have enough space, perhaps, to start to start looking into it. And then I also ordered in that you now there's a freedom of information right that you can order in all the records that were written about you. And this box arrived in my in the post, a plain cardboard box, and it was full of 400 pages of darkness I suppose or darker mm. memories than I think the thing about memories is they're mostly given to you by your family you know like you sit with your family and they say remember when and 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 if you don't have family in that way what you do is you hold a few worn scraps of paper in your pocket that you carry around with you when you move from when you're renamed or moved from place to place and what the box gave me was 400 pages of other people's thoughts and because they weren't to be read. They were never going to be read. They were unguarded. And also, I think the thing is that I was brought up in a rural community in Devon in the 60s when people were less, perhaps we could say, enlightened than they are now in the way that they thought about children like me. We were to be quarantined, essentially, I think. We were kind of, the idea was that you were somehow infectious, that you're sort of the lack of morals that you were part of. I, I found 
records where my mother had been tent- sort of been tested to see whether she was feeble-minded. There was always that assumption. There was a sort of sort of Christian Christian amount of guilt and, and shame, and I don't believe in shame. So I worked to kind of, if not smash that, to expose some of it for uh, to light. I think. You dedicated the memoir to your brother, Christopher, and you write that he had a very strong sense of who he was. He harboured hurt for longer, he couldn't help it, and that his world was painted in black and white. And you say that you dealt less in certainty and, you know, that when you moved to the... um, to the Dudleys that you, you know, you were both conscious of, you know, trying to keep them happy and keep your position within their family and that you both played a very different game. I think there's something, to, I mean, the problem was that the very, what I hadn't realised is very, very early in, they changed my name. Mm-hmm. They changed my name to Peter within, within three or four weeks. I've got in the box, I find a letter where he calls me Alan Peter and it's the first letter he's written back. And it's about a month in, and it's, it seems to me there's a thing when you change somebody's name, and, and it happens a lot. I mean, if you go and get a rescue dog, you might not call it Satan or whatever the dog was called at the time. You might rename it. So what you do is you create a space for that person or child or dog to grow, but you also take away something of who they are. And later they gave me their surname, and Christopher didn't want it, so he was more certain in that way, but... He was a young kid, and I don't think it should have been his decision. I think either we should have, neither of us been named. We came as a pair, Christopher and I. We'd come from a less certain time, and the one thing we had was each other. And I think that to separate us in a way. And the other thing in the notes are they talk about their disappointment in Christopher. There's sort of a constant drip of disappointment, and they have to be persuaded many times not to send him back. I was an achiever, and I think it's that when people take kids, they can't help but want, or people do good. They want results, in a way. And it's like that his Dudley's thing, my foster father's thing, was he would sort of take cottages and kind of restore them. And I was a sort of restoration project, mm-hmm. you know, that you could kind of paint it up and sell it on. And I think Christopher was a more complicated kid for them. And... I found that difficult, though truthfully, I also wanted to be loved and I wanted to be held. And I found threats to send us back very disturbing and unsettling. And in the end, it made me angry. You structure um, um, the memoir over a little over a calendar year. I think it goes from, um, is it June to September of the following year? And you talk about the community of members on an allotment and mm. how you all work together and support each other. And, you know, some people were sick, some couldn't attend their allotment for different family reasons. And you talk about the relationship and the questions, you know, that, that in some way the gardening was a form of therapy and that you were in conversation you know, with your plants, or it was a type of conversation. I thought that was really interesting. I think I think it's a sort of family. I think if you let yeah. go of the idea that family, that the only family you have are the people whose blood you share, then I think then you find you you can share quite a lot with somebody. I, I was I look after a piece of land for Mary who was ill at the time, and she was quite poorly. And I and I watched the piece of land also slightly get a bit ragged and a little bit invaded and a little bit under threat, and, I, and it became important to me that this piece of land thrived while she was away. It was important that it, it didn't succumb and that I would do what I could to be, for it to be a place that she could come and she, 
And she's a very active gardener, and she would come for a while and just sit. And it was it was a kind of duty of care. And you know, you might say that the reason I grow from seed, and you might say the reason I have I hold duty of care deep, is because you know, it's that you were, I nurture things because I felt less nurtured as a child. I mean, it's it's probably true. Do you think gardening has a merit of quality, though? You know, in terms of you describe it and you write somewhere just you and the job and meditation of hand and hoe. Yeah, I, I think you can get lost. I mean, yeah. I, I go there sometimes and it's uh, um, and whatever mood I'm in. And sometimes it's inconvenient because I've got to go there, I've got to water, or I've got to do something or I promised somebody else I'm going to water for them. And it's the, um, and I've come from the newspaper office and newspaper offices are not the most meditative places sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I walked through that door, and I walked through the gate, and I go there, and I realized when I left that I, I think there's a thing that says it's that my heart rate slows, my, and I'm more peaceful. I think, it, I think it's it sort of, I like gardening in the rain, because everything else disappears, and there's, there is just you and the rain and the piece of soil and the thing you're trying to look after or encourage or, you know, get ready or... To, to, you want the best for things and you use as much effort as you can for them to thrive. It can also help with anger. I know after a, a heavy day in work and any degree of frustration I may be experiencing that when I um, hit my raised beds and um, I feel somewhat productive and I get kind of, you know, whether you're putting on fertiliser, whatever you're doing and whether it's the muck and wh- whatever it is, it can it just cools you down, doesn't it? I think that's true. I think it's that. Um, I think it just sort of basically it's you're you're in a kind of quite primal sort of thing, really. That what you're what you're doing is you're simply trying to help something live. And it's a it's a, I think I sort of talk about it as um, something alive without legs to look after. Mm. It's 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 almost that simple. You just want the best for it. I think. And it's and it's hard to be angry in the rain when you're muddy. Honestly, it, it all seems a bit a bit mad. And also, it's a it's a pretty spot. And I grow nice looking things and I grow, I grow some flowers. And I hadn't realized that the flowers I grew were flowers that I've been given. I, I, I just thought I grew them because they were jolly flowers. I, I grow nasturtiums and calendula and they're classic companion plants, but they're both bright orange. And it was only honestly in the writing of this book that I realized that they were the two sets of flowers, the two packets of seed that Dudley gave my brother and I. And I don't think Christopher ever grew them again. And I, he gave me nasturtiums, and they were—they just work. If you give a kid flowers, or you give—if you want a kid to do something, give him something that will work. If you put nasturtiums in the ground, pretty much whatever kind of garden you are, they're going to work. They're going to—a brown piece of ground will become a bright, gaudy orange mm. sort of tussle thing of full of life. And it's the—I um, don't. It, Christopher didn't have the same connection, but I—I I kind of—it makes me happy in some way to look over where I'm growing and I see calendula that he didn't grow and somehow it's it's a connection to him I think but I but I was totally unaware of that connection I don't I think it was completely subliminal and it was was certainly subconscious I wasn't aware of it I thought I just grew them because they grow you know everybody talks about they're good they have the good insects to kill the bad insects Mm -hmm. 
You write very movingly, Alan, about your experience of psychoanalysts and you, we get you going into, into work straight afterwards or having to perform, a, you know, at a kind of high-flung um, function or whatever it is. And it got me thinking, you know, obviously, you know, digging away at childhood memories and trauma is, is beyond challenging. But is psychoanalysis for everybody, do you think? Do you think it works for everyone? No, I'm, I'm not sure it does. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think you have to be in the right place. It didn't work for me, yeah. truthfully. I mean, I gave it a good go. I gave it five years. I had a guy who'd been recommended, and then he recommended me to his guy. The truth is, though, they, they kind of want you to go five days a week. And it's quite an emotional and financial investment. And I just felt you, in the end, what you do is you, you lie on... The, I, I found I was crying because I couldn't protect my sisters, and I wasn't there when the harm happened to my sisters. And I thought... I can't rewrite that past. I can't do it. And, mm. and also, I wasn't there. And in the end, I was three years old or four years old or five years old. And the things that happened to them were like a hurricane. And I don't know. I think a lot of people, it's very useful. I wouldn't discount any kind of therapy. I think whatever mm. people do to, to I'm not going to say exercise their demons because I don't think demons mm. can be exercised. And I don't believe in catharsis at all but I do think that you, there are times when it's useful to talk to somebody and to acknowledge that you have these feelings mainly because I, you know, I have kids and I didn't want when when I started reading the stuff about from Dudley and Dudley's invoices for all the presents and all the secondhand broken toys that we were given and it was that I didn't want that to spill into my life mm-hmm. I didn't want suddenly to like flare up in my office, but, I, but I, what I really didn't want to do, I didn't want to spill it into my home. And I can go to the garden and I can grow something and I can kind of process it in a, yeah. for, for one of another word, non-verbal kind of way. And for me, it felt slightly deeper. But putting in a freedom of information uh, request to um, your childcare homes to see, you know, what the story was, there was so much that could have been unearthed or not that you just had to, like, that must have been a very difficult decision for you and for your wife and your for your children to all. Um, well, my, um, I, I think in a way, it's once you sort of, I wanted to know more about why Christopher was different to me. I wanted to know why I didn't remember stuff. And I'd met my mother in my 30s. And when I spoke to her family, my mother died some years ago. And when, I, when you speak to people, there, there is an amnesia that you're aware of. And I think actually children who have difficult childhoods develop amnesia. But also I think that people sort of give them amnesia. It's almost like you can be infected with amnesia as a, as a way of... Because there's things that you don't want to remember. And the things that genuinely you can't... You can't process as a child. Those things could not have happened. That person could not have done those things because they're there in the morning and everything's normal. Mm. And I think that it's... Um, so... But if you're going to do it, you have to kind of have a go at it. But I, I, I have two friends who did it at the same time. Um, and oh, we, we weren't aware that we were doing it at the same time. We were only aware at the same time when we started sort of talking to each other about it. One of them works quite a lot with their past in in a way professionally and they started reading about two pages in and sent it to a solicitor and said look keep this for me i'll read it another time 
another one, a woman who I care for very deeply, went into a kind of slight spiral of, she, she talked about being in a sinkhole because she can't communicate that stuff because you have no protection to it. That's, that's the thing about that kind of information. Yeah. Stuff that happens to you as, as an adult, you have immunity to, you, you deal with it as an adult. But things that happen to you as a child, somehow you never learn to deal with it as an adult in a way. It, it, it hotwires you to an unhappiness that you, is quite difficult to, to process sometimes. You also traced your biological father and it brought you to Liverpool and it was a it was it a did, very yeah. they yeah, seemed such cool. a such a wonderfully warm family. They um you did two rounds of blood tests and it was quite a journey, wasn't it? <laughs> it, it, it in the end, even now in the end it, it seems it seems strange. What what happened was that I was I one of my uncles said, You know you're in Bernardo's and I thought, No, I don't know I was in Bernardo's. And he said, oh, no, you were in there before you were born. And I went, I contacted Bernardo's and got those records, too. And it, you know, it, it's true that before I was born, uh, my grandparents wanted me into Bernardo's. And I started, so, and I was in a Bernardo's home at two months old. And I decided I would look at those records if I could. It's much harder with Bernardo's than it is actually freedom of information. But, um... I'm, I'm looking at these records. I'm sitting in some office with a kindly woman in East London, and suddenly it says, and it's got my mother's name. It's got my mother's signature. And that's the thing. You realize it, and it talks about her. It talks about her being sullen. And it's sort of, it's quite judgmental the way it's written, and she's sort of sitting between these things. And I'm just feeling for this 19-year-old girl. And it suddenly said father's name, and there was a name, Francis O'Toole. And... It'd been a name. My mother had never mentioned it. When she, when I met her, she had a kind of mystery laid out for me. She told me how they, she'd been in love for a long time, and I knew that that likely wasn't the case because my brother's a year older than me, and we don't share the same father. And I started calling in birth certificates and death certificates and marriage certificates for Francis O'Toole's. And it was quite difficult. And I found this Francis O'Toole's death certificate and wrote to his brother. And this very kindly, really gentle, old gentleman in Liverpool wrote back to me immediately. And I told him the story. And um, I went and saw him. And I am eternally grateful for his kindness. And truthfully, it was a com- I think it is complicated because there was the DNA in the end was mostly conclusive i think but you know, i i think for kids like me there's a you know the, the tomb of the unknown warrior mm-hmm. which is for when when you've lost someone and you're a wife or a girlfriend or a mother or a father and they haven't got the body there's a place that you can go and i think in the end for me it's that um i don't i didn't know francis at all i i've now spoken to his children but um, he's my unknown warrior, really. He's mm. a place that I, I now have in my world that I didn't have, where I'm happy to... He's a place that is something to do with where I come from.
I thought it was very interesting how all your siblings, um, you know, you had all very different takes on how you judged your mother and the decisions that she made and then your stepfather. And, you know, you you all reasoned with the information in very different ways and you all interrogated the truth coming from very different um, perspectives, didn't you? But I, th- I think it's just that to some extent, it's, it's, it depends on how questioning you're going to be to some extent. I think it's that... Um and also to do with loyalties. I think if you've been brought up by somebody, then you'll look at it a different way. If you've always been told one story, you'll hear it in a different way to if you haven't. It's that, um, in the end, what I realized was that for some faults that they had, um, Lillian and Dudley Drabble, a kindly old elderly foster family, are my mum and dad. Because they're the people who looked after me. And when I was ill, they're the people who took my temperature. When I was cold, they're the people who kept me warm. When I, they were the ones who made sure my shoes didn't leak. And it's a lesson I learned, I think, that parenting isn't, doesn't come by blood. It comes from time and effort and care and kindness and tenderness. What did your own children make of the memoir? I presume it was made for very tough reading for them. You're the man that they love. It, it was, uh, well, I think to some extent it's that... Uh, I haven't hidden it from them, but 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 written down, it, there's something about the written word, I think, which is different to the knowledge of it. And it's uh, um, my elder daughter, Carla, who lives about, I'm looking out at her garden as I talk to you now. I sow her garden on her birthday, and she's out, and I kind of look out, and she also, actually, as I look out, she has calendula and nasturtiums in her garden. Almost for the first time this year, and I don't know whether that's because of her or me, or just that some years they grow differently. But um, she did it, interestingly, she, she got the book, but she also got it on um, an e-player. So she read it on Kindle, and I, I read the book. I did the audio book. And I did the audio book as a defensive mechanism, partly because I didn't want, this is, without any judgment, I didn't really want an actor over-emoting on it. I didn't want someone acting out this story. The story's quite spare and quite raw and quite honest and open, I think. But there are emotional moments yeah. and I didn't want it worked. So Carla listened, you know, lay in bed every night and listened to me reading my story. Well, and it lights up her Kindle as she read it. And I think it was, um, I think it was emotional for them. Of, of course it was because, but I think sometimes you, they, because your kids love you. Your kids love you unconditionally, mostly. And, and hopefully, that's the one thing that the lesson of the book is. Mm. That try to love the people in your life unconditionally if you can. I presume you've no regrets. I know that you, no. you, you, know that you, you talk about different types of wounds scab over and you, you write at the end of the memoir that you occasionally erupt. But it's, it's struck me from it that, you know, some people medicate their past away. Others do talk through therapy through their past. But you were confident in your decision to face your past head, head on by that information request. And you were, you were happy to face those consequences no matter what they were. And in, and in your case, they came with, I think it transpired that you had herpes and TB and um, your brother. I had the full rig. I yeah, had, and scabies yeah, and so on. I was yeah. four years old. I had impetigo, scabies, herpes, rickets, and TB. That's literally yeah. like every cherry of the unloved you could possibly have. 
That's not a particularly comforting thought, I have to tell you. It's, um, and you do, I, but there's, there's a thing in, in the Bernardo's records. It's, you know, I'm two months old and, I'm, I'm, and I've suddenly been taken from my mother and put in this orphanage. And you, it's not a very comforting thing if you start actually looking at Bernardo's orphanages. There's long rows of steel cots. But it says in there, it says, appearance and demeanor contented. And I think I would wish that for any child in that condition. I think it's, it's been the luck of my life that I was contented in that. I don't know I'd be so contented now yeah. if I was taken away from everything I had and locked away in a cage. I don't know that I would feel that. But um, truthfully, I, this is also Christopher's story. Part of, right at the heart of this book is a love letter to my brother. Yeah. And it's a lament. I think, mm. I think like the Irish laments mm. and the Scottish laments. Mm. And it's, it's basically, I think that somewhere in the book, I'm like a widow standing on a key and I'm calling my love for my brother who's lost at sea. And I lost my brother and this book brought him back and I'm incredibly mm. grateful to it for that. So would I be right in saying that in, in one way you weren't looking for closure, you were just looking for an understanding, is that it? I don't know that I believe in closure. Right. I, I, I don't know that I believe in catharsis. It's simple, isn't it? People say, oh, well, I hope it was cathartic. I don't think knowledge is in particularly peaceful. But I think what it is, is I, I'm proud of it and I stand by it. And I, I get to tell my brother's story. And it's his story that's not often told. Kids like me were... They don't become newspaper editors very often, you know, kids with my past. Um, they don't become... They, the numbers are against us. The numbers are... Where the numbers are strong are in prison, addiction, prostitution, early death, disease. I'm a... I'm someone who can stand and say, this is me, this is my brother. And I, and I have at least some small skill to tell that story and tell it well, I hope.